This lecture is brought to you by Dadalarkam, the Center for Islamic Information and Education. We pray you benefit from this lecture and that this lecture brings you closer to Allah. For more lectures, you can visit our website at www.ciie.org. Inshallah, this topic that we hope to cover in the next couple of days, uh, I think uh, especially in the current uh, situation, it is obviously a very relevant uh, topic and it's also something very important for the Muslims themselves to understand what is extremism from an Islamic perspective. And at the same time, it's also very important for us to understand what is not extremism. In other words, what is it that we as Muslims should be doing as Muslims, which does not fall into the realm of extremism, which but actually which falls into the correct practice of Islam. Nowadays we hear lots of discussion about Islam in the media here, for example. And we should be able to understand what is correct about Islam and what is not correct about Islam. And the falsehood that is sometimes put out there in the name of Islam, we should have the ability and the knowledge to know that it is false and we should also, if we are living in this kind of uh, environment, to the best of our ability we should try to get a hold, uh, get uh, control of or understanding of what is the correct view and how to respond to the false charges leveled against uh, Islam. And inshallah in these next uh, two days, the lectures that we have prepared, there's quite a bit of material that uh, I wish that I would be able to cover inshallah, but actually uh, we maybe will be able to cover maybe a third or even a quarter of really some of the, the material that we should cover to understand this concept properly. As I said, especially in the light of what is going on uh, nowadays in the Muslim Ummah. <clears throat> and to begin with, inshallah, I want to define certain concepts and certain terms. And uh, the first two terms that I want to concentrate on are the terms fundamentalism and extremism. Now, obviously, we have the board available, and I'm going to try to use the board, but because of time constraints, I may not use it as much as uh, as, uh, as I wish. But I'm sure you're all familiar with these terms nowadays, fundamentalism and extremism. Almost uh, any time now, when you, if you listen to news, whether it be on the radio or TV or in the newspapers, there's a lot of talk about the Islamic fundamentalists and the Islamic extremists and how to deal with these Islamic extremists and Islamic fundamentalists. And we should realize at the outset that even the term that someone uses can be very, can be very powerful and have a lot of meaning to it, have a lot of implication. Where if you're speaking to a certain audience, they understand what you mean and they can make their own conclusions from what you've said without you needing to go into details about what you mean by it. I'm sure, for example, uh, you all recall <clears throat> when uh, President Bush declared 
the uh, the crusade on terrorism. Now, this term crusade, probably for President Bush, it doesn't uh, doesn't mean much. He might not even be familiar with the uh, the crusade. Growing up in the United States, going to high school here and so forth, you don't hear much about the crusade. But from an Islamic perspective, or from the Muslim world's perspective, the idea of the crusade is something very clear in their mind, what it is, what it implies. And even to some extent in, uh, in Europe also, the meaning is very clear to many people. Many people in the Muslim still, world still remember, for example, that when Edmund Allenby in 1917, when he conquered Jerusalem, he said, now the Crusades have come to an end. That was less than a hundred years ago. So it was the fight against Islam. So this word, crusade, for a common American, maybe you have like the crusade against breast cancer and all kinds of crusades, may not have that much of an impact. For, but for a Muslim, the impact is very clear. And then what did they change it to after the in Operation Infinite Justice? <laughs> then there was a problem with that because uh, too, I guess, the uh, United States was making itself too divine. And then they finally uh, changed it to what is Operation Enduring Justice? Huh? Enduring, enduring Freedom, yeah. I guess they forgot to realize that enduring also means suffering, you know, to endure something. So basically now we're suffering the freedoms that uh, are being forced upon us. So I want to, dis I want to begin by uh, discussing the term fundamentalism itself and how is it being used and what does it imply. Fundamentalism from a Western perspective in general has a negative connotation. If you say that somebody is a fundamentalist, you are actually, in general, using a pejorative term for that person. And the reason it has this negative connotation is because when the Westerners think about uh, fundamentalism, fundamentalist, they're thinking about specific Christian groups. In fact, these specific Christian groups, most of them really developed in the United States in the 19th uh, century. And these uh, Christian groups have some particular characteristics. And this is what sets them apart from the rest of the Christians, even in this society. Those Christians that you could be, that you could be defined, described as fundamentalists in the United States, for example, are a very small minority. They seem to be growing, especially politically. In recent years, they've had much more political power than in the past, but still they are a rather small portion of a society as a whole. And some of the things that set these fundamentalists off from the other Christians is their belief in the Bible as being the literal word of God, unaltered in any way, perfect, and its teachings are to be applied exactly as they come down in the Bible. 
Now, when you hear about that as a, as a Muslim, you know, if you, if you think about the Quran, this doesn't seem to be a big problem. You know, you're a Christian, you should believe in the Bible, right? <laughs> you would think, anyway. But that's not the way most of the Christian churches are nowadays. In the sense that there was a movement that took place in, uh, in Europe a couple of centuries ago, in which, uh, or a few centuries ago, in which the, the people began to notice that there was a difference between what they were seeing, for example, as scientific fact, what they were seeing as reality, and what the church was teaching as being the truth, as being facts of life. So, for example, the idea that the uh, that the Earth revolves around the Sun, when the scientists first came up with this idea, this was something shocking to the Church, that the Earth is not the center of the universe. And as you know, many of these scientists, they were persecuted by the Church. Many of them were even killed by the Church. What developed out of that, uh, finally, was there was a break between the society and the church. And they developed something called higher biblical criticism. In which people started to study the Bible and started to realize that the Bible was actually compiled by human beings. And of course, if, you, if you've read the Bible, you notice that. But it was compiled by human beings and it was not the perfect literal word of God. And you can even say that some of the reaction to that, really some people went to an extreme to the extent that they basically then say, okay, if this is not the actual word of God, the literal word of God, then we should base our life on other things. And the, the, the idea of secularism, the idea of basing your life not on religious teachings, not on what comes through from God, but on human conclusions and human values. This is what developed in Europe, spread, of course, to the new, the new world, the United States. <clears throat> so there was, there's an understanding among many Christians that yes, we believe in the Bible, but we don't believe in it literally as every word in it is, is true. So for example, if you go to many Christians, you know, they they can go to church every Sunday and and, uh, and sing and do all that stuff that they do in church. <laughs> but if you, if you ask them, for example, if you ask them, do you believe in the creation of Adam or in the creation of the universe as it's described in Genesis in the first book of the Bible? They'll tell you, no, they don't believe in that. Do they believe in the flood and Noah bringing the animals on the ark as it's described in the Bible? They'll tell you, no, they don't. they don't believe in it. They'll tell you these things are not literally true. They are just there to give us meaning, understanding that we can take from that and, and apply in our lives. One thing though I've never been able to understand, and this shows you the power of uh, propaganda. You can take some of these Christians who are, uh, and even Jews, who are almost uh, agnostics, you know, in the way they deal with the Bible and so forth. And you can ask them uh, if they believe in the, in the creation story of Genesis. They'll tell you, no, this is like a myth and has a meaning to it. The creation of Adam and Eve and the 
and the story of Satan. No, even many of them will say Satan doesn't exist and so forth. Do you believe in Jesus, the miracles that he performed and the resurrection? Resurrection, probably most of them would have to say yes. But they will say, no, we don't believe in all these things. You know, they're just uh, myths and, and teachings and so forth. But then you ask them, do you believe that uh, God promised Israel to the Jews? Yes, I believe that. <laughs> Based on the... You know, everything in the Bible is just myth and all of that. And all of a sudden, you come to this. And yes, this is true. This is the promised land of the, of the Jews. Something I've never been able to figure out, except for that's the power of propaganda. So, the majority of the Christians, when they turn to the Bible... They don't have this belief in the literal uh, wording of the Bible. And one of the main things that separates the, fun, the fundamentalists from the rest of society is this belief in the literal meaning of the Bible. That everything in the Bible is a revelation from God and it is true. And the, and the, and the Bible is to be taken literally and at face value. They also have some other concepts that they believe in uh, that separate themselves from the from the others. For example, the fundamentalists believe that they themselves are the only true Christians. That everybody else has, has left the correct path and they are the only true Christians. So therefore they have a tendency to look at other Christians as if there's something wrong with them. They are not really Christians. They haven't really gotten the grace of Jesus or God or whatever uh, they, uh, however they would say it. So these are some of the aspects with respect to uh, who is defined in the Western world as a fundamentalist. And as I said, it is a negative concept. If you look to the mass media, for example, when they use fundamentalists, even in the Christian context, even though uh, at least because they're Christians, they are more or less accepted within society, especially if they stay to themselves. Once the fundamentalist Christians start to apply what they believe in in society, then they become a problem. Otherwise, as long as they stick to themselves, they're, they're okay. Like, for example, in, in a city in, uh, in Colorado, Colorado Springs, when the fundamentalist Christians started to try to pass laws concerning what they call family values and these kind of things, then you found you found how much hatred and how much unacceptance there was among the main population towards the fundamentalist Christians. So this is kind of an underlying thing that always kinds of exists, that the fundamentalists are some kind of a fringe group that is looked down upon uh, by the rest of the Christian population. <clears throat> And when you, when you look at their history and when you think about it, it does make sense, so to speak. I guess I could, you could say I'm a little bit biased here. <laughs> but if you study the Bible, for example, if you, if you have, if you've ever studied the history of the Bible, to believe that the Bible is really a literal word of God that can be traced back somehow to some kind of revelation from God, this is very far-fetched. And if you look at the errors and the contradictions that exist in the Bible, also you can come to the conclusion that there's something wrong with the Bible. So between the two groups, which one is more rational? Which one seems to make more sense, the fundamentalist and the non-fundamentalist? 
the non-fundamentalists are more rational in their approach. Because basically the approach of the fundamentalists cannot be uh, defended on a rational basis. It is a leap of faith, really. And if you ever have to, if you ever get in the unfortunate uh, circumstance of trying to debate with these born-again Christians and the fundamentalists, you will see that you are dealing with someone who has gone beyond logic and reason <laughs> to what is basically a leap of faith. You'll get to that point sooner or later. So you have this group, what are known as, as fundamentalists. So their characteristics, when you think about them from the rest of society, and even how the rest of society, when they talk or when they write about them, they are, to some sense, they are irrational in their approach. They're not willing to listen to science and historical fact. They are uh, kind of bigoted. They look upon the others as all having strayed. And they look upon themselves as having the only uh, real truth. So, within the, within the Christian population, you have, as I said, this group of people who are the fundamentalists. However, what happened is that when the, uh, when the Orientalists, uh, in their discussion of Islam, especially since, like, the Iranian Revolution, and uh, some of the developments that have occurred in the Muslim world since the late 1970s, mid-1970s, late-1970s, this is usually the, the era, the time in which uh, many people notice the difference that has occurred in the, in the Muslim world, the kind of Islamic revival, especially after some people even try to trace all of it back to the defeat of the Arabs in the Arab-Israeli war. As people begin to return more and more to Islam and start taking their Islam seriously in the Muslim world, the Western media and even to some extent also the scholarship, Western scholarship, which of course always had its own biases, but the Western media, they, they wanted to describe what is going on in the Muslim world and who are these people who are calling for Islam and who are trying to bring about such changes in the Islamic world? So they took this term, which as I said has a very clear negative connotation for the masses in the West. They took this term fundamentalist and they applied it to those Muslims who are going back to their faith and who are applying their faith. And fundamentalism is a term, they, they came up with a term which never existed before in the, in the Arabic uh, language, al-usuliya, fundamentalism. You know, you can search through all the old books among the Muslims, there's no such thing as al-usuliya. They are taking this term exactly from the West, and applying it to the Muslims. Now, as I said, the first, uh, the first idea, the first 
thought that's going to come to a Muslim, uh, to, I'm sorry, to uh, an American mind, or to a Westerner's mind, when he reads in the media, that, oh, the Islamic fundamentalists did this in Egypt, the Islamic fundamentalists did this in Iran or in Pakistan and so forth. His idea is going to be there's a group of people among the Muslims who are irrational, who are bigoted, who cannot see the truth. They're making a leap of faith. They cannot see historical fact and reality. And the reason they're making that conclusion is because of this term that is being used for these people who are trying to apply Islam. Because they have just taken this term from a completely different context, a completely different background, and now they are applying it to the Muslims. And they are saying that these are the fundamentalists in the Muslim world. And what they tried to do also, I guess I can use the board here. See, one thing about... uh, fundamentalism in the, in the Christian world and in the Jewish world. By the way, there's just as much also... That's not going to work. <laughs> there's just as much, if you read, for example, about Judaism, there's just as much as this break between the uh, conservative and the modernists and the, uh, uh, the different groups among the Jews. You also have the same kind of break in the Jewish faith where... If this is what they call the the fundamentalist, one thing among the fundamentalists is that you can find what you can call among the fundamentalists in the West. You can call, you can find what they call extremists, those that will go to all to any level to any means to uh, implement their beliefs, implement their points and will use any means to discredit other groups and, and so forth. Now, if you go to the text of the, of the, of the Bible, uh, the Jews and the Christians, the text of the Jews and Christians, if you go to the Bible, I have not read all of the Talmud, but if you, even if you go to the Talmud and so forth, one thing that you'll, one thing that you'll note, if you read through the whole Bible, I've just recently been going through, through the whole thing again, after doing some, through some church and so forth. Within the teachings of the, of the, uh, of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, one thing you'll notice is that there's no concept, there's no concept of extremism. In other words, there's no concept of going too far within or inside the religion itself. Okay, you cannot find when we talk about the concept of extremism and the Sharia, I think that point will be clear. But I think it's important to note that there's no nothing, if you're going to take the Bible literally and follow the Bible, there's no warning and no concept of extremism that you as a good Christian or a good Jew should be aware of and stay away from. So what they did, as I said, they tried to take the same kind of thing to to Islam and they wanted to describe now who are the fundamentalist Muslims. And as I said, 
you know, even the word, the term fundamentalist, I guess we can, uh, we can deal with it, we can accept it uh, for the time being. <clears throat> but if you, if you go uh, to some of their texts, And see now when they talk about Islam, who are the fundamentalists and also who are the extremists among the Muslims. Now when the West is talking about Islam now, sometimes they do not even distinguish between fundamentalists and extremists. All of them are the same. Someone like Daniel Pipes, for example, he'll say, okay, a Muslim may look nice, but underneath he's, every one of them is a potential terrorist. Not even extremist. This is what he told the Philadelphia newspaper. And Daniel Pipes is also one of the, when the, when the Congress had their, 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 their largest session studying Islamic revivalism and fundamentalism among the Muslims, one of the three, uh, specialists that they brought was Daniel Pipes. Uh, proposing these kinds of ideas as to who are the Muslims that we should be afraid of and who are the fundamentalists and extremists and so forth. There's a book uh, by uh, a Christian writer. His name is uh, Dick Majin. It's called uh, Islam and Revolution. And he talks about the fundamentalists and he describes two groups of fundamentalists among the Muslims. One he calls them the uh, passive fundamentalists, and the other one he calls them the activist fundamentalists. Okay, now again what I'm doing is this is from our Western perspective talking about Muslims. So already when they talk about fundamentalist Muslims, you already have the perception that there are some Muslims who are okay, acceptable, we can deal with, and then you have the fundamentalists. And beyond the fundamentalists, obviously, as we hear about a lot lately, you have the extremists among the Muslims. So the uh, the passive fundamentalist, Dikmajian, he describes him as someone who regularly attends the mosque, observes the five pillars, he strives for an exemplary life by applying the Quranic uh, prohibitions such as abstaining from alcohol, he reads the Quran and other literature. Uh, he participates in group activities and neighborhood self-help. He grows a beard and mustache, often displaying, displaying short haircuts, which is good for me because usually my hair is pretty long, so that means I'm not one of you fundamentalists. <coughs> they wear distinctive clothing such as uh, galabiyah, so you know where he was uh, <laughs> talking about, and uh, hijab for women and so forth. These are what he calls activists. I mean, uh, passive fundamentalist. And he says the, there's, there's passive fundamentalist and then there's act, activist fundamentalist. What's the difference between the passive fundamentalist and the active fundamentalist? Uh, basically, they're pretty much the same, except an activist will pursue, like those Islamic characteristics, more vigorously. He'll maybe try to... Uh, live in Muslim communities, and he will also visit certain mosques. And then he says, the activist, now this is an activist fundamentalist. It's not even an extremist or a terrorist. He said, the activist fundamentalist, as opposed to 
the passive fundamentalist, periodically engages in acts of purifying violence directed against places of illicit pleasures, the nightclub and so forth. Okay? These are the fundamentalists. When you talk, when you hear them talking about all oh, these fundamentalist Muslims and so in different places, this is one of the first studies published in the West about who are the fundamentalists in Islam, in this book called Islam and Revolution, which was translated into Arabic, by the way. What was the title of this book in Arabic? Al-Usuliyah. So it was very popular for a time, period of time. Al-Usuliyah, fundamentalism. Uh, also, Daniel Pipes, for example. Daniel Pipes, in his testimony before Congress, he says there's three types of Muslims. The secularists, <laughs> who rule, who rule on, on behalf of the West. And they believe that it is a must to completely separate religion from life. Obviously, those are the, those are the good Muslims. And then you have the reformers. But he's giving you now three choices. Then you have the reformers, and they are the ones who mix between the Sharia and the Western civilization and try to make the Sharia compatible with Western views. Reformers, like modernists and those kind of people. And then you have the fundamentalists. Those people who believe that the Sharia is to be applied in its entirety. And then not in front of Congress, but elsewhere he said, that these people, these fundamentalists, they are anti-Semitic, anti-democratic, anti-West, and refuse to have a peaceful coexistence uh, with the West. So when he was talking to Congress, he said that the American government, Congress, should support the leftists in the Muslim world because the, the leftists at that at this time, you know, in the past uh, couple of decades, have become very weak. He said the leftists are very weak. So we can support them to fight the Muslim fundamentalists, while, of course, the government in power all stays in the hands of their friend, the secularists. 